millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He You know, you wouldn't go to the city without your gloves and a matching handbag. You just didn't. You you tried your best, even if you might have a little cardigan on, which was the thing about New Zealand girls always in their little cardigans. I really loathe the cardigan. More of Barbara's cardigan loathing in just a bit. You're listening to Eyewitness, and I'm Sonia Yee. For fashion designer Barbara Herrick, assembling the perfect outfit was everything. Back when Barbara was young, girls and women couldn't wait to get their hands on the latest styles. After the war, all these fashion magazines started to come into New Zealand, American ones, Vogue, and uh, we were just so taken. A new trend was taking hold around the world, referred to as the new look. Carmel Snow, who was a former editor-in-chief for America's Harper's Bazaar, had coined that phrase on the debut of Christian Dior's first collection, two years after the end of World War II. The new look signalled a social shift for women, with signature shawl and curved collars, sloping shoulders, full skirts, padded hip lines and cinched in waists. It was an outright celebration of femininity, following the utilitarianism of the war years. 1947, he brought in that look. I was still in college. The girls loved it because it was after the war, with these skinny little clothes because you couldn't get fabric. Suddenly, we've got this beautiful look with the two and three petticoats. The only problem was getting on and off trams because they were quite long, the skirts, and your heel would often catch in one of these layers. Very dangerous. You had to be very careful. But fashion isn't always about practicality, and where there's a will, there's always a way, even if it's a safety hazard. We risked the danger. Of course we did. You do that sort of thing for fashion, but they were beautiful, and women suddenly looked so feminine after the bleak years of the war. It was an exciting time for women and fashion, but there were also designers doing exciting things in New Zealand. Trilby Yates was one of them. But she and her sisters were very famous and they created beautiful garments. There was only ever one garment in the window. And it was always beautifully made. And That was my aspiration to really be as good as she was. She had a cut and a line that a lot of people didn't have, and she had it. And you could tell it was different. At this time, Barbara had been attending Drouillet College in Auckland. She was 15 when she started, and that was 75 years ago. It was the only school that I knew of. I just wanted to make clothes. (laughs) I just wanted to make clothes, any clothes. It was there she picked up the tools of the trade pattern cutting, sewing and designing. 
She'd come from a creative family who were also in the business. Her mother was a knitwear designer and her aunties had also worked in the industry in Australia. But there were things her mother couldn't teach her because knitwear is quite a different skill set. Different from fabric, flat fabric. You know, it's quite a different... You had different machinery, so it was quite different, really. But once Barbara left Trulé, much like today, jobs in the industry were hard to find. Nobody wanted you. Nobody. But, of course, you had no day-by-day grounding. When you go to... um, a workroom to get a job and you say you've learned cutting and designing and pattern cutting especially, which is usually a very important thing, they um, say, yes, but what work have you done? And of course you haven't. You're straight out of the, the school and that's what they want. It's really difficult to get into the clothing trade because there's only one or two designers or cutters to every big factory, as it were, I could have saved my mother quite a lot of money by just going into a, a big place to learn at the grassroots, really. To get by, she picked up odd jobs making clothes for neighbours and friends and doing contract work for one designer in particular. Emma Nucky, she had a little shop just behind Smith & Coe's. I would go there every week and she would give me a whole pile of fabric and just say, do your own thing with them. By now she was married and had a young daughter, so the flexibility of contracting allowed her to work from home. She didn't want me making more of her style. She wanted me to put in my own look, a different handwriting, so she could have a different handwriting in her shop. Which was perfect. The opportunity gave Barbara the boost she needed to eventually go out on her own. I wanted to make my clothes. I wanted to put my handwriting on it. I wanted women to feel lovely. And that's what she did with her own label, Babs Radon. I opened the first shop in Mount Eden, and they came from all over. It was about 1957. Found this uh, new block of shops that was being built. Shops were so rare because nothing had been built for years because of the war. You had to pay, I think was mine was £500 to get into the shop. That was the key money, as it were. Was it a lot one. back then? tremendous amount of money. But, you know, you had to do it if you wanted to get a shop and in a good position. There was also a lot of competition in the industry. It always felt there was a lot of people making beautiful clothes. But where there was competition, there was also a sense of community in the fashion industry. Gus Fisher's LJ label. In fact, we became very good friends. We we used a lot of the same fabrics and often run out. would borrow from each other to complete garments. And having a signature aesthetic also differentiated the Babs Radon label from others. I wanted them to be not too structured, but structured enough so that they held their line. And I realised I was learning a lot about fabric, and it was really the fabric that dictates what you do. I loved cocktail wear, and those days you wore a little hat of some kind. You really dressed up. You know, you wouldn't go to the city without your gloves and a matching handbag. That's tried your best, even if you might have a little cardigan on, which was the thing about New Zealand girls, always in their little cardigans. I really loathed the cardigan. I tried to keep that out of my range. But um, Was it too dowdy, did you feel? Well, it was just, it would take it away. They'd have a lovely dress on, lovely little pair of gloves, nice shoes, nice handbag, 
And then they'd have a cardigan on. They just, I would have rather frozen than put a cardigan on. <laughs> because you do when you're young. You don't care. I can remember getting on the back of a tram once and I had these huge sleeves and the stress I'd made myself. They were big, puffed, long sleeves. My mother gave me a coat as I was going out the door and I said, no, I can't wear my coat. And she said, you must, it's freezing. I just wouldn't crush those sleeves if you paid me. I'd rather frozen. This is also a time when girls and women are learning to sew from a young age. So how did Babs Radon appeal to potential customers who might have wanted to replicate her designs from their living rooms? There are things you can't ever make at home, really, because you don't know the little tricks that make the things that much better. There's a lot of things that you can tell straight away that they've been made at home. And that's not being snobbish or anything, it's just the way they put their facing on the neck or the way they do the hem or the way... Just little things that you wouldn't do in any good production. You would, you just wouldn't do it. But you learn that as you go through the trade. You can usually spot homemade things. And to prove a point about Barbara's eye for detail, she used to compete in national competitions, including the New Zealand Gown of the Year back in 1958, the Golden Shears in 1962, and she also competed in the New Zealand Wool Awards, which offered the winner national publicity. Barbara won the Supreme Award 58 years ago when she was 33. That experience was also a little bit special, because Queen Elizabeth II was in the country. It was the anniversary of her accession to the throne and 123 years since the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. She was also in attendance at the competition. Yes, and she presented me with my award. She said, did you do all this? She thought I had produced the whole show, and of course I hadn't. And she asked me about my children. She'd obviously been briefed. She knew I had a boy and a girl, and she was really lovely. And she had the bluest eyes I've ever seen. Well, I hadn't been so royal-minded, but I was very impressed. I really was. Barbara had learnt to curtsy, of course. When I curtsied down her, the pressure on her hand to pull me up was more or less to say, well, you know, that's low enough. I don't know how low I was going, but <laughs> it was really very nice. But that's also when she noticed something about Her Majesty's outfit. She was wearing a Norman Hartnell suit. Norman Hartnell was a leading British fashion designer who began his career making dresses and gowns for debutantes, and from 1940, he gained the Royal Warrant as dressmaker to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and almost two decades later, was also appointed as dressmaker to Queen Elizabeth II. He had been trying out this new interlining, which we were all starting to use, called Violene in those days. It's just a fine interlining that you put behind fabric to give the fabric a bit more uh, body. He'd built the entire skirt using this fabric. Norman hadn't factored in how the garment would wear on an actual person, and Barbara couldn't help but notice. So she was busy patting her skirt down, and I knew exactly why she was doing it because some violins are stiffer than others, and he'd obviously used one that was quite, quite firm. 
violin's got a life of its own. It just bobs up. And when she stood up, she had to push it down, you know, sort of pat it down. What she had on was a silky skirt, which would have hung quite limply. And he was trying to make it stand out into a style. Sometimes fashion is about experimentation. As for the business side of things, buyers took their role seriously. Babs Radon had retailers stocking her clothes around the country, especially at high-end department stores. But to sell the garments to buyers, she held in-house showings. Twice a year, we used to do winter and summer. And during that time, it was a six-week period, we'd show our uh, range, and we had usually three or four models to model those ranges. And they'd have appointments. We'd have buyers from all over New Zealand, and they would make appointments during the year, and then we'd show them the range. Back then... Models were more than coat hangers. They could be the difference between a sale or a fail. We had many fittings before that range so that they'd look really great. Not all models are good. I mean, they may look great, but they often aren't, uh, often aren't that popular with a buyer. The one that smiles and remembers their name, those are the ones that do sell more garments, I'm afraid. But there was one model that was her favourite, Elaine Hammond. She'd worked for Barbara for about 20 years. Oh, my dear friend, I lost last year. Elaine was one of the true ladies in, the, in that uh, business. She really was. She was a lovely model and everybody liked her because she, they knew she was a lovely person, you know, as well as looking lovely. She was so kind. Certain models sell garments very well, but... They also had to, uh, you know, remember to smile and, and be friendly and not be looking too posh because sometimes they'd be intimidating to some of the... You might get a model from a long way down south from a tiny little town and she'd be sort of overwhelmed if you had some of the girls in. They would be so scared they'd be scared to buy that garment because they wouldn't have someone in their town maybe that could carry it off. But there were also some rules around selling wholesale. It was almost territorial, at least for the buyers. Yes, well, it was very difficult. We had Cacoldi's in Wellington that we always sold to. But then there was James Smith's at the other end in those days. And they wanted our clothes, but we couldn't really sell them the same garments. And the same happened in Auckland. We had Babs Radon in, in Vulcan Lane in a shop in Vulcan Lane, and then we had uh, Smith & Coe's. But there was one way she could get around that demand. And they said, well, why don't we create a, num- a name for them? So we called it Sophia Fifth Avenue. And they were different garments, completely, but they were the same fittings. But the garments were different styles. It was just as dressy. We didn't do casual much in those days. We did more mother of the bride, uh, weddings, outfits, going away outfits, cocktail wear, things like that. As well as catering to the New Zealand market, Babs Radon was also stocked in Australia. We sold to George's in Melbourne, Mark Foy's in Sydney. But the Australian buyers have a, a different attitude completely to New Zealand buyers. We were used to buyers coming and saying, yes, we'll, we'll have three of those in different sizes or four of those. But the Australian buyers let you know straight away 
that there was a baker's dozen and that was that. They wanted more for less. You just had to put in a freebie. We were a bit shocked, really. She didn't ask for it in her size. She just wanted an extra one, which I don't think is good. And they were used to buying buyers, as it were, sometimes. They were used to getting all sorts of gifts. If you had a good buyer, uh, she would get all sorts of gifts from manufacturers to give you better space in the store. And there were all sorts of women investing in the Babs Radon label. Yes. Oh, look, you know, mothers would, would come in and say, look, I just want something so special. I've had four children and I really want to look nice at some wedding or wherever they were going. And they really cared. They really did. Today, people don't dress up. They seem to dress down In and New make Zealand themselves especially. look as sloppy as they can. But you see, that's the difference between fad and fashion. This fads come and go all the time. Babs Radon focused on quality tailoring and craftsmanship. Everything was carefully handled and tissue wrapped before being sent off. Babs Radon garments were so special, each item came with its own hanger. It was padded with matching fabric. They paid for quality and they expected to get it and they expected that they wouldn't have to snip off cottons, that it, it would be done. It also meant that when they were sent to stores, they didn't have to be hung up on those wooden or wire coat hangers. You know, the ones that make those pointy shapes in the shoulders. And my buyers loved this, so we became known for that. Except one day, Barbara was visiting one of her retailers. I went to a promotion at James Smith's. I was helping sell garments, as you do. One lady asked for her hanger, and I said, yes, just one moment. And I said to the buyer... Where's this hanger that belongs to this garment? She looked at me and she said, Oh, I don't give those to the customers, love. She said, I keep that for my knitwear. And it was me trying to keep something really good and quality to go with my garments. And she'd been stashing them away in a cupboard. So those poor souls never got their matching hangers, sadly. But, you know. Today, it seems the fashion industry is constantly in flux with the rise of fast fashion impacting on the environment and the industry turning to more sustainable approaches to manufacturing, at least where they can. And of course, we've also changed the way we shop. And some of us like to shop fast, which means we don't even have to go into a store to try anything on. But back in Barbara's day, it was important that her garments were considered. Well, because they didn't have the selection that you've got today. I mean, the selection today is incredible especially for young women. They've got a huge selection. We didn't have that. Women were more catered for than young women. And young women now seem to have dominated the selection, I think. There's more young styles than there are older styles. But in my day, they were more sophisticated rather than young. Babs Radon sat at the high end of the retail market for women's wear. And while Barbara didn't have to deal with the kinds of issues that designers are confronted with today, and I know there are lots of them, including COVID slowing down the supply and demand chain, there was one event that hit the industry, a change to decimal currency. We went from, say, £25 a dress to $50. People nearly died. They couldn't handle it. They kept thinking £50, not $50. New Zealand had been using the pound since 1840, and for it to suddenly change in 1967 was kind of overwhelming. Oh, that really hit the industry terribly. 
It took a year or so for people to get their brain used to that decimal. People just felt they were paying double the price, even though they weren't. It took ages for them to get used to it. And the unfortunate thing? No one could adjust their pricing to accommodate the transition. There was nothing much they could do about it, but your sales certainly went down. We couldn't go any lower than we were. The fabric comes in at a certain price. Your labour is a certain price. You can't make it for nothing. You're better not to make it. It was very difficult. But for the most part, Barbara relished her time in what could be considered the heyday of the fashion industry, a period where there was no shortage of incredible craftspeople and no such thing as fast fashion. And she achieved a lot during her career. It was sometime in the late 70s that Barbara made the decision to leave the industry behind in order to take time out to look after her granddaughters. But is there anything she misses? And does she have any regrets? What I regret is not staying in longer. I really regret that. Once you leave the clothing trade, it's very hard to get back in because so many things happen all the time. New fabrics come in, fabrics with lycra that I hadn't experienced. All sorts of things happen. I would have loved to have, after my five-year stint with the girls, loved to have got back in and started something but I've always regretted because I don't think I realised I was going to live this long. As I think about those models twirling around in beautiful gowns, there's still one question I have. Did she keep anything from her collection? There's a collection of clothes at the museum in Napier. And this is where those timeless pieces come into play. Barbara kept the one garment that every woman should have in her wardrobe. There is one little black dress that I wore to Kakoldi's 100th anniversary. It has been modelled a couple of times and shown at the museum and a couple of other places. The reason I've kept it is because I was so much skinnier than I am now and none of my granddaughters have been able to get into it. So I sort of feel it's quite, quite clever to keep this dress. That was Barbara Herrick, who'll be celebrating her 91st birthday this year. You've been listening to Eyewitness. I'm your host and producer, Sonia Yee, and the sound engineer was Mark Chesterman. If you'd like to listen to other episodes from the Eyewitness series, you can head to rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness or download via Spotify, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.